My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 147 of Legally Clueless. And it also happens to be the first episode of 2022, which is awesome. We made it to the other side. (laughs) So happy new year. And I really hope that the next 12 months are just drenched in grace in peace and in joy for you and the people that you love. If you are new to this podcast, welcome to the farm. You're about two years late, but it's it's fine. <laughs> Almost three years late, but it's okay. So first things first, audio episodes go out every single Monday and our video series well season two of it is currently ongoing on our YouTube page a link to that is in the show notes and you also need to join our Instafam we're Legally Clueless podcast it's our nice warm fuzzy yellow corner of the internet a link to that page is in the show notes and I always forget this but I haven't today our Facebook page Legally Clueless check it out link in the show notes so I'm going to go back to the YouTube channel because we did something super awesome on the first day of 2022, which was yesterday. <laughs> well, while I'm recording this, we decided to start the year with a bang by giving you the Legally Clueless Tour Zimbabwe episode that is hands down my favorite tour episode so far. Ah. Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe has my heart. So we went to Zimbabwe in November. We met so many beautiful people. We were so honored to record so many powerful stories. Visit <sighs> that country is beautiful. So beautiful. Not only Harare, we also went to the Victoria Falls, which is just such a surreal moment to me. So if you go to our YouTube channel, you will be able to watch this powerful episode. But not only that, one of the people we met in Zimbabwe, her name is Chedza. I am so honored to have met this woman because she shared such a powerful story. Oh my word. She is so wrapped in resilience in strength and it's not just you know having those two things to kind of like weave through life no for her it's what I see from the outside in and obviously it's the first time meeting her but I was just like (gasps) so moved by the energy I think those two are for bigger purpose I I feel like her life story is going to serve a bigger purpose and I'm so honored that we got to have that story on Legally Clueless Tours Zimbabwe the video episode and also the entire stories in this episode. Listen to this. My name is Chiedza Dana, and I'm from Zimbabwe. My very first visit to the gynecologist, I was diagnosed with having fibroids. I went from having three very, very small fibroids to them being gigantic. But my flow was so heavy, it was very hard to do certain social things. I would be scared to sit on people's couches and I got pregnant. But I'm so scared to tell my husband as well because I'm like, no, let me make sure this is real. So I go and I go buy a second test. I go home and I do the test and it's positive. Towards the middle of that first trimester, I start having these horrible cramps. They're just horrible and I start bleeding. We're so excited. We've prepared everything. We've got a crib. We've got all our bottles. We've got our clothes. The following day, I felt the baby move, maybe a little less than I had the previous day, but nothing that felt alarming. And then he put me on the table and did the scan and he was just quiet. And I just started shaking like on the table. 
and he's like, huh, I don't hear a heartbeat. And I just start screaming. That's a bit of Chedza's story that is coming up a little later in this episode and is also in the Legally Clueless Tour Zimbabwe episode on our YouTube channel. That is a mouthful. However, I don't want to speak too much because her story is pretty long and I couldn't cut it. I, I just wanted you to go through it the same way I did when I was recording it. So most of this episode is Chedza. But what I will share is the song of the week that I think needs to start all of our years. It's by Londrell and it features Shalian Gajada. And it's actually a poem that is performed in like a spoken word like song situation. But the lyrics. So I'm going to put a link to the piece or the song, whatever you want to call it, in the show notes. But I'm also going to read you part of it that is so powerful to me. Okay, got it. I was trying to like, ooh, where should I read from? Hmm, found it, found it. Okay, so there's a bit that goes, Beautiful woman, so many times you have shrunk your being to fit into spaces you don't belong. Time and time again, you allow the world to dim your infinite light. Sometimes you even dim your own light. Who taught you these treacherous things? Let this be a reminder that you are more expansive than even your own imagination. You are the universe, the galaxies, the cosmos, and everything that the divine is. And so, because you are that, you are capable, you are gifted, and you are so unique. Ah! Tell me that those words are so powerful and that's just like a bit of it. So please check out the song of the week, which is by Londrell featuring Shelian Gajada and the name of the song is Go Bravely. It is magic. So as I said, we need to jump into 100 African stories because I really want you to listen to Chedza's story in its entirety. We recorded the story while we were in Zimbabwe. It is a story of, unfortunately, a series of miscarriages. And the journey to motherhood that isn't as straightforward as everybody tries to make it seem. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. My name is Chia Zadana and I'm from Zimbabwe. From a sort of young age, I very much took for granted A, that I would be a mother. And I thought it would happen very easily. It never ever would have occurred to me that that would have been a challenge at any point in my life. And because I'm from a very small family, um, I have an older brother and got my two parents. We were very, very close-knit. I kind of just thought that was the kind of family that I would have and that it would just happen like that, you know? And when I would hear the story about how my parents met and their story about how they then had us, it was just so easy, you know? I just took for granted, like, yeah, when you want to be a mother, it happens. You do the deed and then the baby comes. <laughs> So I never, I never ever would have anticipated that it would, I would face the difficulties that we then faced in becoming parents. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons that we waited such a long time, or that we kept postponing it, putting it off, thinking that as soon as we decided we were ready, the baby would come. So when, I, when, when we got married, when my husband and I got married, he's four years older than me. I got married at 27. We didn't feel any particular urgency to become parents. He was 30. And 
In fact, if anything, I would say I was, I, I felt that I was very much at the beginning of my career. That's such an important work is such an important part of my life and such an important part of my identity. I really wanted to feel settled in my work. I wanted to feel that I had achieved certain things. I can't say that I had a very specific checklist in terms of what those things were, but I thought that intuitively I would know that, yeah, I'm in a good place professionally. I'm ready to take a few years out of work do the parenting thing, and then I can just jump back into the workforce, you know? And, you know, at the beginning of our marriage, my husband and I had talked about the fact that I would like to take a bit of time, and he was very much on board with that too. And an interesting thing was when we first met, very early on, we had talked about adoption just as something, I grew up, because having grown up in Kenya and having grown up in a very like international community and the expat community, there's so, adoption is a very, it, it, it happens a lot in that community. So I grew up, around like a lot of our family friends had, had adopted children and, and it was something that I always just thought I would love to do. And incidentally, it was something that my husband had said that he wanted to do as well. And that's how the conversation around when would we like to start a family have, you know, happen. And this was before we got married, before we were even seriously dating, to be perfectly honest. So we were always kind of on the same page about that. And so when we did get married, it was sort of like, yeah, no, no, you know, four years, loosely four years. And then four years came and went and it was sort of like, no, I'm just getting into the, you know, the very stuff of my career is happening now. And it didn't feel like it was the right time. I also wasn't feeling, I guess, what I'd read about these like tuggings of motherhood or whatever. I wasn't feeling that. Um, and he certainly wasn't. We were just living our best lives. We were still partying and living it up. And we did a lot of traveling. My work required me to travel a lot. And, it, and I would say also, if I'm honest now, I don't think that I was mature enough either. There were still a lot of very important life lessons that I had to learn I, that I think the universe was waiting to teach me before making me a mom really. But I had no idea. Of course, I was oblivious. I thought I knew everything. So I would say that the first kind of tuggings that I felt myself actually were external and they came from my husband. My husband. So we went through a really rough period where so my husband is a um, He's lost both his parents. He's 40 now, by the way. Uh, so he lost both his parents when he was, uh, his mom passed away when he was 21 and his father passed away the year we started dating actually, which would have been, nine, uh, what was that, 2008 or something. And his father passed on. And so it was him, his younger brother, and he had a twin. So the three of them, all very amazing and accomplished people in their own rights, you know. Um, and my husband's very best friend in the world was his brother. And unfortunately, he passed away very suddenly in just the most heartbreaking way possible. It happened in our house. It was completely unexpected. He had an, uh, a pulmonary embolism. And it happened in our house, in our home, just one night in December. We woke up in the morning and it, and it happened. And it was such a heartbreaking experience. It paralyzed us. Literally, you know, for my husband, I think he felt like the world had stopped. The whole universe had stopped. And, you know, my parents at that time were still working in Nairobi. So it was just the two of us. We had friends, yes, but, you know, your friends aren't there with you at night when you're scared to walk by that room and you're... And so I think it was then around about shortly after that, about a year later, when he said, what would you think if we started trying now? And I was kind of... At that point, I would say in two minds about it, I was, still, I was still feeling so deeply buried in the grief of it that it felt like that was a thing we were doing in, as a reaction to that. And that we weren't really in our best space, in our best selves. But that's where the conversation started. 
And I would say that's when I then started saying to myself, okay, so it might not be right now, but let me just make sure that everything physically with me is going fine. So that's when I started my uh, visit to the gynecologist and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then my very first visit to the gynecologist, I was diagnosed with having uh, fibroids. And it's something that runs in, in my family. A lot of the women in my family have had fibroids, but you know, it's, they're not, it's not necessarily a serious condition. It's plenty of women have fibroids and plenty of women conceive with fibroids. And I had a, a gynae who was very kind of, I would say the, that first consultation was very kind of just easy about it. She was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's not a problem. We'll just keep an eye on it. And everything else was fine. Uh, my husband got checked out as well. Everything was cool. And over that year, a really strange thing happened. I think emotionally, mentally, I was just under so much pressure. I also had a really high pressure job. I was under so much emotional distress and so much pressure. And really, that was such a traumatic experience, the death of our, of our brother, that I think it, I, it really changed my body. Within the space of a year, I went from having three very, very small fibroids to them being gigantic. And I wouldn't say, apart from stress, there was nothing else significant that changed in my life. I hadn't changed my diet, I hadn't changed anything. I still exercised the way that I did. So I can only attribute it to the trauma. And that completely changed how my body functioned in terms of my monthly cycle and all of those things. I literally got to the point where my flow, I'm sorry to be graphic about it, but my flow was so heavy, it was very hard to do certain social things. I would be scared to sit on people's couches. I would, you know, things like that. And so that happened in such a short period of time. And so when I went back to my gynae, at that time, she was really concerned. She's like, something serious is happening here. And they did a few investigations. It turned out there was, there was nothing that they could find except for the fact that now you've got this massive fibroid and actually it's really affecting, it was affecting me lifestyle-wise. And so she was sort of like, come back to me when you're ready to have it taken out. Kind of thought, well, you know, I read around and thought, apart from the lifestyle side of things, how does that affect conception and da 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 da, da and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't, from, from what I had read, it didn't seem like that would present any kind of challenge. I decided to go for a second opinion, and the, and the second gynecologist that I went to said, there's no baby that's going to grow in there, so let's, let's take out that fibroid. So I had that procedure done. That was in 2017. It was a really difficult procedure to recover from. Physically, it was very painful. But I would say six months later, I felt fine and like myself again. And then I would say that was the first time that I thought to myself, you know, it's it's probably not going to be as straightforward as I always thought it would be. So yeah, let's, let's start the process of like thinking about it and maybe like, you know, knowing what we need to know in as far as looking at a calendar and knowing what are the right days and da da da. The fears that I had weren't really necessarily related to my ability to have children. It was more, this was the first significant issue that I'd had with my body. So the prospect of having to have surgery, it was those kinds of fears, but never related to parenthood or my ability to have children. Um, and I think particularly because everything else had checked out as being fine. And also, I should say that, that that whole year, I'd had a lot of other significant health challenges, which were, again, just my body just, just crashing. I was going through so much emotionally, my body just crashed. So I had all these strange afflictions, like I had this one condition, I can't even remember. The other day I was trying to remember it, and I was like, what was that thing called? Where the lubrication between your lung and your rib because of stress, it just disappears. And so every time I would breathe, it would feel like I could feel the suction, it was very painful. And when I went to the doctor, he was like, nothing is wrong with you but stress. We have to figure out how to deal with stress. And it was just, you know, and I developed anxiety and all of these things. But none of those things were ever related to, oh, I might not be able to have kids. No, never. And, and that had an 
cross my mind at all at that point. So initially it was very casual. It was sort of like, yes, I'm keeping track of my calendar days. My husband had, you know, he downloaded the app as well and so we were keeping track of it. And so I would say it was, we weren't even actually even consciously initially saying we are trying to get pregnant. It was just, we're in the space where we feel like this is what we want to do now. Um, we're not actively trying, like timing it like, today's Tuesday, I need you back here at 7 p.m. It wasn't like that. It was sort of like, we'll just let it happen in the background. And two years passed by and nothing, it hadn't happened. At this point, we'd been ma married now maybe seven years. So now we had never faced any pressure from anybody. No parents had said anything. My husband's family had not said anything at all. I think they were very deliberately conscientious about the fact that we'll let them do their thing. My parents had never asked me anything. My brother had had, had a daughter at that point. Nobody asked me anything. No one's asking anything. So I'd, I never felt any pressure. But at that point, my mom sort of said, so what's up? <laughs> what are you guys thinking? And then I sort of said, yeah, no, we're planning for it and da, da da and she said have you been to your doctor and, da, da, da. and I said yeah and everything's fine and she said he's been to the doctor too I said yeah everything's fine and so it's just a waiting game and so I would say that's when it maybe two years into trying was when it started living in our minds a little bit like hmm this thing hasn't happened like what's what's going on Hello. so you act on it by now it's 7 p.m <laughs> where are you <laughs> no babe we gotta be I said at 7 p.m where you at and that went on for quite a while. That went on for, like I would say about it, actively for about a year. And still nothing was happening. And so I changed Guyanese again and went to a Guyanese who, and, and now I'm getting more conscious about my age too, right? Because I started my marriage at 27 and now I'm like, go at 30, 34, 35, around there. And I'm like, what's going on? And now really feeling, doing a lot of other like self-development work in the background, doing a hell of a lot of therapy, doing a hell of a lot of, and really thinking about actually what kind of parent do I be? What does, you know, what does intentional parenting look like for me? And da 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 and all of those things. So now I'm getting closer to feeling like I'm ready for this thing. What's happening? Why is it not happening? And then so I changed Guyanese and I went to a, a, a new Guyanese. And still there's nothing, there's nothing physically wrong with you. There's nothing physically preventing you. You don't have any scarring that would prevent you from having a child. So is it not happening? And so my mom, who uh, my parents were still in Nairobi at that time, she said, come to Nairobi. There's this doctor that I heard about who's really amazing. Maybe let's just have him have a, a second look at you. And so I said, fine. So I flew to Nairobi and I saw this doctor who was amazing. He's so, he's like, you know, those guys who are booked and busy, like getting a slot is like impossible. But through a family friend who'd who, a friend of my mom's who'd had twins through IVF, he said, I'll, I'll come and I'll, I'll, I'll make, a, I'll make, I'll give you like 10 seconds to come and see me. So I went and I saw him and then he, we went through everything um, in a much more, what can I say, considered manner. Like he was saying to me, this is exactly how you interpret your calendar. Da, 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 da. And then he put me on these fertility pills, which were basically like to boost my ovulation. So they make you hyper ovulate, just basically make you produce like more eggs than you would normally. So we did that. And got pregnant. Within the first round I did of that, uh, what is it even called, that hypoovulation tablet? Within the first round of doing it, like a month later, I was pregnant. So I'd gone on a trip to China for work. It was, a, it was one of those trips that I was supposed to have taken in December. We put, kept pushing it, pushing it, pushing it back, and I ended up going in April. I flew to China on the journey back. No, actually, so what had happened was when I was in China, I felt like my period had come. So I'm like, oh, my period, oh God, I'm to have to travel, you know, with that situation. So I'm traveling and I'm feeling like kind of crampy and all of these things and come back to Harare, land in Harare, and suddenly it's gone. And I'm like, completely forget about it, right? But two weeks later, um, feeling just, a bit strange, got a funny taste in my mouth, 
I've got um, really, really bad nausea. I felt it, the symptoms came early, 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 early. And the reason they came early is because I was actually expecting twins. I didn't know that at the time. So come back, come back from China, go um, through this period where I'm like not really feeling like myself. My business partner said to me, have you done a pregnancy test? I'm like, no, I haven't. I had my period when I was in China. She's like, let's do it. And literally I'm sitting at the office and I, and I do the test. And sure enough, it's positive. I'm like, no, 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 impossible. So I go, literally go home. And at this point, I'm so overwhelmed by this feeling. Like I can't, it's a thing I can't contain. I'm so happy, but I'm so scared to tell my husband as well because I'm like, no, let me make sure this is real. So I go and I go buy a second test. I go home and I do the test and it's positive. Then I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me go to the gynae and just make sure that they can check. And then so I go to the gynae, same day, dash to my gynae. And he does a test, he's like, you're pregnant. So I tell my husband, and we're just over the moon. So happy, so happy, just full of expectation. And I have a dreadful first trimester, horrible. I guess, I mean, I know when you're expecting twins, your HCG is extremely high. So you feel typical pregnancy symptoms like double, right? So you're sick. And I'm, when I talk about I'm sick, I'm dead sick can't eat anything, can't hold down water. Towards the middle of that first trimester, I start having these horrible cramps and they're just horrible and I start bleeding. And I'm thinking, oh Lord, oh Lord. And I call my husband and he's at work and he says, go to the, go to the gynae immediately. So I go, I remember it being in so much pain, I couldn't drive. And so I called a regular cab guy that I used to use then. And as he's driving, I was like, you need to go super slow because every bump, I felt it. It was so painful, it was excruciating. At this point, by the way, I don't know that they're twins. I don't know that they're twins. I just know that I'm pregnant go to the gynae and he does a scan and he says, hmm, you know, he has this weird look on his face. I'm like, what's going on? And, but mind you, I'm still super early, right? It's really early in the pregnancy. He's got this weird look on his face and I'm like, what's happening? And he's like, yeah, I can see that you've got a bleed. You know, you can see this through the, and he said, so I'm just gonna put you on bed rest. And the, as he looks closer, he says, whoa, we've got twins here. And I'm like, we've got twins? Oh my God. So he puts me on bed rest and he says, just keep me updated about everything. And so I do, and I go through this like next three days and it's excruciating, super, super painful. And you know, in the background, you're Googling furiously. Like, what does this mean? Da, 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 da. How can I tell if I'm losing both the twins? What does, how long should the this, the da, 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 da. And you know, now getting stressed and all of this stuff. And he's like, you need to just rest, put your legs up. And that was it. Thankfully, after just a few days of, of that, went back to the gynae and he was like, we're fine now. Everything's stable, everything's normal. Sigh of relief, my husband and I are just like, oh my God. And then we proceeded with the pregnancy journey. Like I said, the first trimester was just a mess. I lost so much. I, I lost like that first time around, I lost maybe seven kgs. And I was a very lean girl anyway. I think I was a size eight then. So I went down to like a size, uh, cannot see me anywhere because I'm not skinny. So second trimester felt fine. Absolutely fine, I had no issues. And I continued life as normal. I continued working, I continued traveling, and even did one long distance trip. Everything felt normal and everything felt fine. In my final trimester, I knew that I was gonna have a cesarean because I had had that previous uh, operation where I'd had my fibroids removed. So we had now at the stage where we were kind of planning what dates are we gonna use for this expected delivery? And we had planned for, I think it was like a, some, I can't remember now, but it was a, oh no, it was the 9th of November was the, was the expected 
date for the... No, the 9th of November was the expected delivery date, right? That was a natural. And so they usually say two weeks before that. So I think it was around about the end of October was when we were expecting to have the delivery. At the end, the, the beginning, right at the beginning of September. So about a month, let's say, before I was due to have... A few weeks, three weeks before I was due to have my C-section. Go to the gynae on a... So what I should add is that we're so excited that we prepared everything. We've got everything this baby will ever need. We've got crib. We've got, you know, everything. Um, we've got all our bottles. We've got our clothes. We've got our bedding. The guy that I had at that time, bless him, really, really wonderful man. A little bit older. But also quite relaxed about the whole affair. It's my first pregnancy. Nothing significant, I guess. No significant issues that would make him think that there could be anything challenging about the pregnancy or wrong with the pregnancy, except for that loss in the first trimester of the one twin. So a lot of things I'm, we kind of are not talking about in great detail on my visits. You know, he just does a scan and he's not even really interpreting and telling me what's happening with some of the things. We're just kind of, oh, it's fine, da da da. You know, keeping my little printout of the whatever and putting it in my little book, like, oh, I'm gonna show him, this is when you are, you know, in vitro and all this stuff and, in utero rather, and it, everything was fine, fine, fine. The last consultation that I went to, it was that consultation was on Thursday. On the Tuesday, I had done my kick count as normal as I would. I didn't do it every single day, but I did a normal kick count as I would. The following day, I felt the baby move, maybe a little less than I had the previous day, but nothing that felt alarming. On the day of the consultation that morning, I remember lying in bed and feeling like what I felt was the baby moving. But I do remember my mom saying to me, when I hit my third trimester, my second trimester, do you feel the baby moving? And I was like, yeah, I do. But I didn't know what that was supposed to feel like. So I was like, yeah, I feel the baby moving. Yeah, he moves. Yeah, he moves a lot, da, da, da. And I remember one particular day we'd gone to a wedding and I was like, the baby's really moving today. Baby's really moving today. Now having gone through a viable pregnancy, it's a totally different feeling, but I didn't know that then. So we go for our final, what was to be our final visit to the gynae and the usual, have a chat with him, lie down, does a scan. In fact, when, he, when I walked into the office, he said to me, huh, hmm, looks like we're gonna have a small baby. So something in me just was like, what does he mean? Am I smaller than? I knew that I was carrying smaller than probably most people were at that stage, but I thought that I'm a very small girl. I'd lost a lot of weight. My mother in all her pregnancies carried very small as well. So I didn't think anything alarming prior to that until he looked at me and sort of said, hmm. And then he put me on the table and did the scan and he was just quiet. And we'd done loads of these before. So we knew that, you know, you go on, he's, he's quiet, then you hear the heartbeat, do, 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 do. And then he starts saying, yeah, da, 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 you're fine, print out, yay. And we hear nothing, we don't hear a heartbeat and he's saying nothing. And I just start shaking, like on the table. And he's like, huh, I don't hear a heartbeat. And I just start screaming. I just knew, I was like, no, no. So I start screaming. And then he's like, you need to calm down. You need to calm down. I need to check you properly, da, 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 da. So I, you know, I gather myself a few moments. My husband is just completely flushed. He's like completely, completely blank. He's gone completely red. And um, he's looking and he says, I don't see a heartbeat. And I'm like literally three weeks before when I'm supposed to be having this baby. Ugh. And I just start screaming like I'm completely uncontrollable and he's saying having this conversation i'm not i'm hardly hearing anything he's talking to my husband saying oh we have got to do this we've got to do that we've got to get she's got to deliver the baby she's got to do this and i'm just i can't it's just happening so fast 
So he asked us to go and sit upstairs. He's got a room upstairs and it's just basically like an empty, like it feels like an attic. We've never been up there. There's nothing there, there's no furniture, nothing. We go, we sit and I'm just like pacing. I'm like, I need to call my mom. I can't even hold my phone, I'm shaking. My husband calls my mom. My mom, I can hear my mom screaming on the phone. She's in Nairobi, I can hear her screaming on the phone. Um, my husband calls his sister. I'm like still so fully pregnant, right? I'm looking and I'm like, no, it's not possible. Like something's wrong, it's not, it can't be. So I'm asking my husband, I said, what did he say? What did he say? And he said, he said he can't hear a heartbeat. I said, but what does that mean? He says, he means there's no baby, the baby's dead. I said, no, what do you mean? It's no, it's not possible. And I said, so what happens? And he says, you have to have the baby. I said, what do you mean I've got to have the baby? And he said, you, you have to go in and do, they have to do the C-section. So all of this conversation has been happening and I'm not, I haven't internalized anything. And he says, you can either do it tonight, today, like we go in today and do it, or you can do it tomorrow. And so I said, I want to just do it now. So he says, okay, we've got to go home and get all your stuff. And so he was in so much shock as well. He couldn't drive, called the driver, driver came, picked us up. And, oh, I don't think I'd ever cry. I'd cried a lot before that, but I don't think I'd ever felt like that. I thought I had never felt anything that gut wrenching yet. So we went home, we spent a day at home. We told my, my mom, got a ticket and she flew in. Um, so she was there by the next morning. I know my dad flew in as well, I think they both flew in. And uh, we told, I told just one friend, uh, well, I told my best friend who was in the UK and I told my one closest friend here. And so she came and she was at the house with us. And I was just, it was just like moving from disbelief into this is really happening, moving from disbelief into this is really, is this really happening? And so the next day went in for the operation, had it done. They put me under completely. Um, so the gynae actually asked me, do you want to hold your baby? I said, no, instinctively, I said, no. And I asked my mom, do you think I should? And she said, I don't think you should. And I asked the gynae and he said, it might be very painful for you. So I would, it's up to you, but I would probably say it's not, not the best idea, but it's entirely up to you. So I just, I, so I opted not to. So you get, you go into the hospital and then they do the, the, the final scan, which is like the final scan to confirm essentially that the baby is dead, right? And I remember lying on that table and I was just like grabbing the sides of the, you know, the gurney and I was like, Lord, if you love me, my baby's still alive. Lord, if you love me, my baby's still alive. And, but you know, it wasn't. So I had the operation and when I woke up from the operation, I was in excruciating pain. It was very painful, but I, I, I never, and I till this day, like I said, I've lost people extremely close to me. I lost one of my best friends. I've lost, I've never felt that empty in my life ever where you literally feel there's everything inside of you has just been removed and there's nothing, there's nothing. I couldn't, I've never felt that before in my life. And I probably, I hope, I pray to God that I never have to feel that again. And I remember saying, oh, like, I'm not gonna survive this. Emotionally, I don't have anything. I'm completely depleted. I'm not gonna be able to survive this. Thank the Lord, really, that I had been doing so much therapy and I had learned a lot of trauma and grief strategies. One of the things that I had been learning about reconnecting with was my faith, my spiritual faith. I'm a, I'm a Catholic, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a practicing Catholic, but I wouldn't say I was like deeply spiritual at that time. But through, through all the therapy that I've been doing, we've been doing a lot of work about leaning on a higher power, leaning on a higher power and learning about surrender and knowing that 
there's certain things that you're going to face in life you are n you have absolutely no control over and you have to surrender them you have to let them go and allow them to come over you and do what they're supposed to do and let things be what they are but you have to accept and i remember lying in the hospital bed this was in the in the, at night when i'd come to and everybody had left and it was just me and I, actually i remember the nurses coming in and saying you know do you know when you when you came out of the anesthetic you were screaming you were just screaming like thrashing your hands around and, and I couldn't even remember that. I remember lying there and I, and I actually said a prayer out loud, which was quite uncharacteristic. Like I'm saying I wasn't that kind of spiritual or prayerful person really. I remember saying out loud, I said, you have to take this from me. You have to take this from my hands. I will not live. I will not survive this. And immediately I said that, I just felt a lightness. I don't know how to explain that. I, the expression that I have now, is that it's that's what grace is to me that's literally the experience that i have in my life of i've le i've lived it i felt grace was i felt something lift and i woke up the next morning i mean i'm still devastated the reality still sinking in the but somehow that feeling of complete purposelessness like i could die today and i've died and it's fine i didn't feel that anymore I, there was an inkling of hope. There was an inkling of, I'm going to find a way to get through it. And I was in hospital for three days. My mom had, by then, informed all of our family. By then, I was, I'd already been planning my baby shower and all this stuff. We even had a date for my baby shower and all this. So, you know, it, it had informed my family, my extended family and all of that, that we'd lost the baby. So I was getting like a flood of messages and things like that. And after the operation, after I was released from hospital, my mom said, come and stay at home at their house here and I was like no 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 I'm fine I really have to face up to this so now I'm trying to do my I can do this I'm strong I want to face up to this I want to go home and just I have to get back into life I have to get back on the horse I have to and I got back home and the first night I realized I should not be here at all <laughs> you know I I, everything around the house just reminded me of the baby. We had all of his stuff in there. We had his nursery, we had everything. And I was like, I'm not ready. That very same night, packed my stuff and my husband and I came and we stayed with my parents and we ended up staying with my parents. My mom took, um, I think a month off work she took. And we were here, staying with her here at her house. And so I did my physical recuperation while I was here as well. And during that period when I was at my mom's house was really, a very transformative experience for me. Initially I had, I was a little bit mad at my mom for like sharing with everybody that this, this is what had happened. But you know, in our culture, as is the case in many African cultures, in Shona culture, you come and you commiserate with the family who has, who has lost a child or lost or whatever. But, but generally that tends to be like a very woman private women do it, support each other kind of privately. Uh, but I had a lot of like family friends come visit us, a lot of aunties come visit us. And my therapist actually came to the house and she gave me a bunch of exercises to do. That month that I was here at my mother's house was such a healing process for me. And what actually I know for fact helped me to heal was talking to other women. I had no idea that so many women in my life had lost babies, had lost babies when they were a month old, had lost babies post-birth, had lost babies at any given time throughout, their, throughout, throughout their pregnancies. I hadn't realized that a cousin of mine and his wife had lost eight babies. I had no idea. And this was a, he's a male cousin and he came and he sat and he prayed with me and he talked to me about it. And they had, at that, by that point, had three healthy children. And he was so hopeful. It was hearing these women's stories that really got me through. You know, I had aunts who would tell me about 
the exact same things that I was feeling. They could identify exactly with the feelings I'm talking about. How you felt that first morning in the hospital, how you felt lying on the table and you realized, I, and I really, really felt I wasn't alone. I remember one particular aunt, one of my favorite aunts, a cousin of my dad's, it's two of them, very mischievous old ladies. I love them, they're so naughty. So they came, but they're extremely prayerful women too. And they came and we were sitting at the table. They had lunch and we'd spent the whole afternoon together. And as they were leaving, they said a parting prayer. And as, as they were leaving, the one aunt said to me, just remember, something along the lines of, just remember, he wasn't a person yet. Oh, I was so angry. I was so, so angry because everything that I'd been doing and every conversation that I'd been having and even the work that my therapist had been giving me to do was to honor the fact that this was a very real experience. This was a person. This was a person I'd come to love. This was a person that I'd come to expect to be a part of my family. It was to honor that they were a person. He had a name. His name was Michael. You know, all of these things. And then this is a person saying this, this baby was not, a, was not human. Are you joking? I was furious. But... Almost in the blink of an eye, I was able to see very clearly that whether she believed that to be true or not, the reason she said that is because she thought that would lift some pain from me. She thought that that was what I needed to hear to feel better. It was very, before she even left the house, I was, I'd forgiven her and it was fine. You know, I talked earlier a little bit about the universe had some lessons to teach me. That was a very big lesson for me was to learn that I'm truly not an island. I knew it in a sense, but to really feel it in a very deep way that I have such a covering around me in the form of people, in the form of love. I really felt it then and in the form of these powerful, strong women around me who have endured so much, way more than I have. And those conversations allowed us to have much deeper conversations about other stuff, about infidelity, about how maybe some of them have been abused, about things that they've been through in their childhood, about things that they experience on a daily basis at work. It just allowed for so, a space of honesty that I'd never had with so many of these women. And they would text and they would call and they would visit and they would sit with me on the, on the, on the, on the porch and they would just take turns. They would even communicate with each other. Have you been to Chances this week? Okay, no, so let me go. I'm going to do Thursday. You can go on the... Wow. And I lost friends too. I lost friends. And it wasn't like I lost friends because people decided that they didn't want to be friends with me. I lost friends because I realized that there were certain relationships in my life that I put a lot of stock in that maybe weren't, they weren't the relationships that I thought that they were. And so they just really helped me to reprioritize where, where everybody fit in my life. After that experience, my life changed really like a lot. A lot of things that I did, a lot of habits, a lot of even my social life just completely changed. The people that I spent my most amount of time with, how the people that I really gave time to completely changed. Uh, my mother and I, you know, we, we, like I said, I came from a very close-knit family. It cleaved us in a way that I cannot explain. It cleaved us in a way that I cannot explain. She was here, you know. When I would when I, when I wake up and I was just having a bad day, she would come in and she'd be like, okay, I'm just going to operate around you. You know, my mom's a very carly lady when she needs to be, but she, I could see so much love and so much compassion. It was just in all of that horrible emotion and all of that sense of loss and that deep, deep, deep grief, there was so much beauty, so much beauty. And what it did for myself and my husband in our ability to really lean on each other. We'd been through, like I said, a traumatic loss before. This felt like just another added thing, right? But you know, we leaned so much on each other. And um, yeah, then life continued. You go back to work, you meet people, 
Some people are like, where's the baby? Because they don't know. You explain the story. And I would explain the story. I mean, a much shorter version than I'm giving you here now. But every time that I talked about it, it felt lighter. Every single time that I talked about it. Until it became a ritual of mine. That if I met somebody and they asked, I wouldn't just offer it. But if, they, if I asked somebody and they asked, I would be completely open and completely honest about it. And every time I felt con more connected to the person I just had a conversation with, I also just felt so much lighter. And the days just continued like that until it felt completely bearable. I could talk about it. Initially, every time I would talk about it, I would tear. Sometimes when I still talk about it, I'll, I'll, I'll be, I can feel the choking, you know? But it got lighter and easier each time. And then we got to a place where we said, okay, we're ready to try again. So this loss happened in 2019. Early 2020, so that was end of 2019, early 2020, COVID. So actually what happened after that is, when we, after we had the loss, we had so many questions. What was the cause of this? As far as we knew, as far as we thought it was a healthy pregnancy, why did the baby die? The explanation that we had gotten was that there was a metabolic issue, which basically means there are about 70,000 reasons that this baby could have died. And I can't tell you one. And so that was a little bit, I would say, a little bit disconcerting for us because it was like, so how do we know what to do going forward? Is there something that we could have done? Is there something, you know, there was just no answers around that. And so I decided to go and visit a specialist in South Africa, mainly to check that everything was fine post-operation to check that, you know, my, my tubes were okay and everything like that. And I met a, a young Ghanaian doctor who, as I recited the whole pregnancy journey, raised a lot of red flags. He was, he'd come highly recommended, this young Ghanaian doctor. It's like really young. And one thing that struck me when I went to his practice was just the technology around. It was like totally different from, I was like, this is how they look at babies, Yanni. The baby's face, you can even, it's so, you know. So that was like really like, oh my gosh, I, I really was trying to have a baby in a stone age situation. But going through the whole process with him, just explaining what had happened with the pregnancy, there were a number of red flags for him. Number one was the fact that my age, you just have to be a lot more intensive because 34 is kind of, you know, I mean, you're not old, but you're not young either. Um, so you just have to be a little bit more intensive and certain things that I should have done much earlier in the pregnancy we didn't do. but the key thing for him was you had a twin pregnancy and lost one that's usually a sign that there could be something the matter and so you have to really investigate very closely especially when you get into that second trimester there should have been certain blood tests that i'd done there should have been a lot more attention paid to is this a healthy fetus and he's the other thing that he said was why wasn't a proper post-mortem done because we do those all the time we get Zimbabwean cases that we examine here in South Africa and it just had never, was never presented to me as an option. And so again, I was like really annoyed and upset, like why didn't we do this and why didn't we? But you know, I, I said to myself, I've got to let things go. I can't, I don't want to be in a place where I'm holding on to things and I'm full of blame. It happened the way that it happened. I've emotionally processed it. I don't want to go backwards in that respect. And so he was like, okay, we're going to work together and we're going to get you pregnant and you're gonna have a baby. What we know is that you can get pregnant and you can carry a baby, so you're gonna be fine. He just explained to me that the very next time that you get pregnant, we are going to throw the book at you. Like, I'm gonna do everything under the sun that needs to be done. I'm gonna do every test. I'm gonna do every, every precaution that we need to take, we're going to take. And so I really feel probably much more than at any point in any of this journey, like I'm really in safe hands. And so he then says, um, let's start you off. Last time you, you used um, Clomid. Clomid was the hyperovulation medication. So let's start you off on Clomid so that we can just get this done. 
We're not wasting any more time. And so I took the Clomid and uh, I, I visited him in February. This was COVID year, by the way. So this is before COVID decides to visit upon us. So I take the Clomid, I take it, nothing's happened. Remember the last time, the first time I took a Clomid, just happened. So that's the expectation that I have, right? And then COVID hits. So now I can't, I can't travel. I can't go and see this doctor. He's really kind of quasi working, really only doing, he's not really taking any, any new cases because everything in South Africa is basically paralyzed too. So it's, you know, this just this, crazy situation and here we are feeling so in limbo and so i try initially we try having conversations with him on whatsapp and it's just not working it's just not coming together and again i'm just not falling pregnant so we go a little while that was in february in july well july or august i get pregnant no actually it was before that it was the first the first pregnancy that i had was must have been april i, I get pregnant and so again the symptoms are very strong i have incredibly acute morning sickness. So that's how I knew. Even before doing the test, I was like, I know that taste. <laughs> that's baby. Um, and so I knew that I was pregnant within a few weeks. So I did a test. Sure enough, I was. As soon, the day that I did that test, I stopped bleeding. Lord, please don't let this be. Do the test, the test is positive, but I'm bleeding. Call my GP, because at this point, I haven't even sorted out a gynae locally call my gp who's an amazing guy and say doc this is what's happening he's like shucks we need to get you to a gynae we need to have you seen and so he refers us to what is the ivf clinic here in zen and so we go there i meet the lead doctor there he's a young guy again i'm astounded by the tech that i'm seeing around me i'm like okay now we're talking though this is this is the business this is where we needed to be and so he says he confirms unfortunately that I'm pregnant, but I'm losing the pregnancy. <sighs> Devastation. Again. This thankfully was in the first trimester, very early still in the pregnancy. It still feels very early on. And so, you know, that passes. And, and the doctor says, okay, so when you get pregnant the next time, you need to come to me immediately. And I said, but doctor, I don't. It just happens. And then I realized, and he says, we've got to keep such a close eye on your calendar. In August... It must have been July, uh, July, August. You know, it was July. Yeah, I get pregnant again. And it's almost like, it's almost like when, I, when, when, when we commit to saying we're going to do it and we're going to try and get it done, I get pregnant. So again, I get pregnant. We're overjoyed. Two days later, I stop bleeding. So kind of this time around, though, it's not, it's not, it doesn't, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not heavy. It's not, it just feels very light. It's just a bit of a spotting. And so I go to the doctor. And he says to me, hmm, we've got to keep an eye on this, but it might just be, it, it, it happens sometimes in pregnancies that you're first. So first it's just light spotting, so first day's fine, and I'm praying. And he puts me on bed rest, and he's given me some medication to stop, trying to limit, like, my uterus from spasming. I'm thinking to myself, please just let this be, please just let this be. The next day, gets heavier. Next day, gets heavier, until it was clear to me in my mind what was happening. And my mom was by my bedside. She's like, we just have to pray. It's going to be fine. I'm sure it's fine. Don't give up. Don't, da, da, da. She has a medical background. So she's like, lie down with your legs up. <laughs> but it's very clear to me. And I know in my heart exactly what's happening. And unfortunately, we lose the baby again. I don't want to say that I'm numb at this point, but it doesn't crush as deeply as even the previous one. Go to the gynae and he says, okay, so now we have to start looking at, at options. What 
we need to do to preserve this pregnancy. What's clear is that you get pregnant very easily, but somehow your body doesn't like it or something is happening. So we need to start looking at your hormone profile and all these kinds of things. So I do a, a slew of tests that I'd never done before. And all these tests come back and they're like, your hormone profile is perfectly normal. You don't have any, there's no deficiencies, no nothing. And I'm like, so what's going on? You know, and there's this test where they, te te where they, where they do the check the compatibility blood type between you and your spouse, or you and your partner to see is there, you know, all this, we do all of these things, everything's normal, what's happening? So then I go back to my, because I, I can feel that now we're kind of in a flow of it happens and then we lose it, it happens. And, and I can feel that emotionally I could get into a place where it, it becomes, I start spiraling, starts becoming draining, starts becoming painful, starts becoming hard, starts becoming, and I start giving up hope. I start not wanting to do this anymore. Without telling anybody, I never ever mentioned this to anybody, but I was already like looking up like, how does surrogacy work? How does adoption work in Zim? And, and I can see that the, all of this is happening with me. And then I'm like, okay, I have to go back to all of those skills that I learned, those trauma coping skills that I learned. Surrender, give in, let it be. Don't obsess over it. Don't give it too much energy. Just let it be. You know, I hadn't lost all the weight that I'd put on from post-pregnancy. I put on a lot, lot of weight post-pregnancy the first time. So I'm bigger than I'd ever been at that point in time. And so I decide, you know what, I'm gonna focus on getting myself back to good health, getting back in shape. So I started working out a lot, changed my diet totally. I went on a juicing diet, it's like a crazy thing that I'd heard my mom talk about all through my 20s and I was like, you're mad. I did a juicing diet. I've never felt that clean in my life. You know where you feel, you wake up and you feel like so much energy, you feel a lightness about you, you feel, and I feel completely guilt-free. It was such a wonderful process. I started yoga and I felt just my most physically fit and healthy self, literally, genuinely. I was going to the gym in the mornings. Every morning I had a hardcore trainer. <laughs> she would really push me. I would do my yoga at home in the afternoons. I took a little bit of a backseat from work. I was eating really clean and just feeling very good. I was doing all my mindfulness work. I was doing all of, you know, all of the internal work and just feeling great about myself, really feeling good. And then I discover very unexpectedly, we now had even really kind of stopped doing the calendar thing uh, because I sort of said, let's just let it be for a while. And then when I feel like I'm really, we'll get back into it. Um, so I wasn't even, we weren't even consciously, but we knew, okay, we'll just, if it happens, it happens. But when we feel like we're ready again, we're going to then give it another concerted effort. August, this is about a month and a half after I had the previous loss, I discovered that I'm pregnant and I did a test. Something about that pregnancy felt different. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what to, I don't know. I can't explain it. I felt such a calmness. From that day that I found out to the day when I was in the delivery room, I felt such a calmness. I can't explain it. And I think it was that going back to those practices and surrendering and saying, I have no control over this. Let me just let the universe do its thing and that's how I felt. So, but although, I mean, I'm saying this, but again, I had a very bad first trimester where I was sick to the bone. The doctor at the IVF clinic, who's obviously used to dealing with these high-risk pregnancies because he does implantation and all that kind of stuff, was like, we're gonna put you on a bunch of hormones through this first trimester to just make sure that you're completely stable and you have all of the hormones that you need for your baby to, to the baby to hold. So I was doing injections every day. They were painful, they were horrible. But again, I still have felt such a calmness about it all. It was strange. So I would go, my husband would drive me in the mornings to, because I wouldn't let him administer the injection. I didn't want to dislike him. 
<laughs> we'd go around the, there was a little clinic around the back of our house. So we'd go there, we'd administer the, the, the injections. Then I was on an oral, oral uh, hormone, which I took throughout the pregnancy, essentially. Went through a lot of illness in my first trimester where I lost, this time around, I lost 10 kgs. I was skinny and I couldn't keep anything down. I had to be on a drip a number of times, but somehow it just didn't shake me or scare me or I still just felt this calmness. And unconsciously, because when you've been through such a dramatic loss, which is so visible and everybody can see, you kind of want to give yourself a bit of privacy with your grief. So the middle, the middle two, um, the only people that knew were my parents and, and, and my sister-in-law, my husband's sister, and um, our, our aunt and uncle in the U.S., my husband's aunt and uncle in the U.S., were the only person, people that we had shared it with. So it was very, you know. But I, I felt that I also needed that to really protect my peace. And for it not to be, the narrative has become, they can't have kids, or, you, you know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I'm really glad that we did do that. So I went through the pregnancy, for the most part at home, this was during COVID too, so I didn't want to be catching no COVID. So I spent most of it at home. I took it really easy. I did all the things that I enjoyed doing. Once I was able to eat, I ate all the things that I liked eating. I kept it clean though. And it just felt like a very calm pregnancy. When we were getting to the last trimester, I thought that I would panic. I thought that I would be furiously checking, you know, getting the dopal thing where you check the heartbeat yourself at home every time. And we never did any of that. Just, it just took it a day at a time. And three, I would say three weeks before the day that I was to have, supposed to have my, my C-section, we went in to go and see the doctor. He did his usual examinations. And what I will say though, that I think one of the reasons that I was able to remain as calm, and my husband too, too, because this also, I can't ever discount how much this impacted him emotionally too. One of the reasons that we were able to remain calm was because we knew we had such a competent team of doctors. Whenever I went for, the, for a scan, the amount of figures I was, that were being explained, written down, this, that, he would check every last thing. He left nothing to chance, nothing. He would want to see the baby from every different angle. He would turn me over and do the ultrasound from the back. I mean, it was thorough. And I felt that confidence that I'm with a team of people who will respond as soon as. And he, you know, if I ever felt even the slightest moment of panic, like, Doc, I'm feeling a little bit more of like what they call round ligament pain. I'm feeling a little bit more. And he'd be like, if you feel you need to come in, come in. You know, he wasn't sort of like, no, it's fine. You're fine. Stay at home. He was very, very open because I think he knew, as he knows, had dealing with parents who've had these kinds of challenges that as a doctor, you also have to be very emotionally available to your patient. And so all of that really helped us through. But we felt, certainly I did, and I think my husband did too, of a very deep calmness throughout. Three weeks before we were due, I went to the doctor. He did his last bit of test and he said, you've made it. And I really felt like, okay, we've made it. But this was also the time at which previously, you know, I thought I, I, thought I had. And, and so he said, if you want to come in every week and do a scan until then, come in and do that. And he did. And I mean, he probably wasn't, whether he was checking or not checking, he just knew that we needed that comfort and that confidence to know that everything was fine. So I would go in every week and he would check and he would, you know, send us on our way. Went to the hospital the day of the delivery. I had a really easy delivery. I was completely conscious. I did the spinal block. My husband was with me. My mom was with me. My dad wasn't allowed to come in, but he was around. We have our boy. 
went in and gave birth to Kashai, who's six months old now. And here he is, and he's the most happy, happy, joyful, calm baby. And I swear that's because I had a calm pregnancy. He's just a happy, happy guy. So, yeah, really long journey, but such a beautiful end for us. And I think that the thankfulness that we feel is so deep because of all the challenges that we faced in getting here. We absolutely treasure him and we treasure that this is a gift that not everybody is blessed with. I think it also just opened our minds up to the fact that there's lots of different ways that you can become a parent. You can become a parent by having a child with your spouse or your partner. You can become a parent by adoption. You can become a parent by through surrogacy, you can become a parent through. All of, all of those ways, however it happens, it is an absolute gift. And in our parenting, we try to be very intentional. This is not the gift that we want to waste. This is not the gift that we want to squander. We know that in as much as he is a gift to us, we also are, have, a, have a bed's responsibility and duty to him. And that's what we're doing every day, just trying to be the best parents that we can be, be the most loving, be the most gentle, the most present. I think I was one of those, because I was the last born in a family of four, and also grew up outside of Zim where I didn't have a lot of like my younger cousins or whatever, so I didn't grow up along, uh, around a lot of young people. Um, the majority of our family friends would have had kids our age. Excuse me, those that were younger had kids that were younger. I wouldn't have grown up in such close proximity to them that I would have known even how to change a nappy. Now, when I see children anywhere, I feel so drawn to them. In terms of how I relate with other mothers, I would say that it's very different. Where before, you know, not having grown up around like young people and babies and stuff like that, I guess I was a bit aloof, you know, I'd see babies and again, yeah, just that lack of appreciation of how they get here. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh baby, you know, as cute, they could be as cute as a button and I'd be like, cute baby, but that was about it. Having our son, I, I feel completely drawn to babies. Every baby that I see, every young child, every child that I see. And I almost feel a very deep sense of responsibility to them as well, to be like kind and patient and present even with them and with their parents as well and just sharing stories about and learning. So what do you do with this? And so did you ever experience this with, so what did you do when they had constipation or with it? Yeah, I feel the dimensions are very different, like of the types of conversations, the nature of things that we talk about. Even with my cousins that have kids, with my sister-in-law who has two, two kids, um, my, my nieces, the conversations are so kind of different now. Again, with the women in my life, other women who are mothers, the conversations are different. You know, they're asking me, so does he do this, does he do this? And the conversations are just totally different. To parents who, or couples, partners who want to become parents, I have a lot to say, but I'll keep it short. I would say that, number one, your instincts, absolutely trust them. When you feel, A, that it's the right time for you, then it's the right time for you. That shouldn't come from anybody externally. But trust your instincts. If you feel something's a little bit off, it probably is. If something doesn't feel quite right, it probably is. And that goes for, from the day that you decide that you want to start trying to conceive, to the day that you're in that delivery room. If you feel even the slightest niggling thing like, Hmm. Pay attention to it. Don't don't let it pass you by. For people that are, you know, actively having challenges, having children, I would say, A, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You can become a parent in a myriad of ways. Really, really focus on getting the best quality of care that you can. There's so many people out there who have specialized skills, who have specialized training, who know how to emotionally not manage you, but share this journey with you 
and carry you in the ways that you need to be carried, that need, know that you need way more information than a couple that doesn't have these type of challenges, that will be patient with you and that will hold your hand during this process. And I think that you always have to remember to look to each other and to look to the people in your lives that are there to support you. It can feel incredibly lonely, but you have to try as much as possible to rely on and be open with those people and be willing to receive the help that you, that you need. People, other people, for me specifically, other women, my parents, my siblings, my friends, got me, got us through. And I think that surrender is a very, very the biggest, most important value that I've learned in this second half of my life, or this part of my life, second half of my life, this part of my life, because I feel that even if it hadn't happened for us, and I'm so thankful that it did, but I feel that even if it hadn't happened for us, I had learned, or not mastered, I'm not certainly not a master of it, but had learned how much being able to let go and give things to the universe just eases everything. So even if it hadn't happened for us, I think I would have been much better positioned, much better placed to accept that and to start looking at what other, what other options were available. I think if I hadn't gone through that, done that emotional work, I would have been desperately trying so hard and probably continuing just banging my head, you know, on a wall, doing the same things. It has to change, this has to change. Why is this not happening? Why is, you know, surrender such an important thing? Because even if you go through, I've got friends who've done IVF, Sometimes it works the 10th time around. Sometimes they're lucky and it happens the first time around. Sometimes they try and it doesn't work and it happens outside of the IVF cycle. If you surrender and you just say, I let it be, that's how you're able to get to cycle number 10. That's how you're able to eventually get to wherever it is that you get. So surrender is another big one. You surrender to every stage, you surrender to every process. You surrender even to your own emotions, except that you're gonna feel angry, except that you're gonna feel bit, um, let down by your body except that you're gonna feel like less of a woman because why is my body not doing the things that it's supposed to do? And just surrender to those things. Let things be, accept things as they are. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. How powerful is that story? And and you know, like so many things stood up for me in Chad's story. Number one, you know how much I love words. And when she spoke about the word surrender being so powerful and so important and so liberating, that really stood up for me. Also, I think just how motherhood was always, and I think quite a few of us can identify with this, it was presented as not only something you can't opt out of but that it was an easy thing to do getting a child it was automatic you get married and then just like that you get kids and it's really not and she also spoke about this experience of having miscarriages just adding a new layer to relationships with the women in her life and her cousin when she spoke about his experience and her husband it's like okay so men how do they navigate the pain because this obviously affects them too and it's such a powerful story and i was telling chedza this yesterday that is one of those stories that you just know is going to connect with so many people who've gone through this and have felt like it's too much of a taboo to talk about or felt that they're so alone in that experience that they start 
wondering what's wrong with them, this is a powerful story. So if you want to watch Chedza tell this story to the camera, you can check out the Legally Clueless Tour Zimbabwe episode. She's there. And at the very end, her son, Koshai. Ah, let me tell you, I absolutely fell in love with that baby from the jump when I first saw him but also I really love babies he just smiles and laughs all the time it's so beautiful and he's calm I think I've only seen him cry once only once (laughs) so yeah he's also in the episode which is it's so beautiful especially knowing how much of a miracle he is for his parents it's such an honor to carry this particular story and I hope you enjoyed it. So I'm going to wind up this episode by number one reminding you that the audio episodes for this podcast got every single Monday. Reason I'm reminding you is that there were two ladies on our Instagram page a couple of weeks ago who were just like oh so you stopped the audio episodes. I'm like what? They got every Monday. What are you saying, sis? Season two of our video series is ongoing. So episodes go out on our YouTube channel every Friday at 10 a.m. And if you're in Kenya, you can catch this podcast on Trace Radio. Just go to traceradio.co.ke for a list of all the frequencies that you can find this podcast on while you're in Kenya. And the final thing I want to leave you with, especially being the beginning of the year, there is so much pressure that comes with the end of 12 months and the beginning of the next 12 months and you just feel like you're being rushed or you're seeing other people like laying out their plans trying to up their game and things and it it can be a lot. I came across a video that was speaking about this and it had a clip where this woman said something so profound. She said, you're not required to justify your existence on earth through constant improvement. You don't have to earn your right to be here. You just get to be here. You belong here. You're loved on earth. Ah, I love that so much. I was just like, oh my God, I have to share this with you on the podcast. But yeah, so that's what I'm going to leave you with. Happy New Year. And thank you for supporting this podcast and listening to each episode that came your way in 2021. Here's to more awesomeness and more Legally Clueless. (laughs) More African stories in 2022. And more tours. I'm manifesting Ghana. We really need to go back there. That's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.